And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for, uh, I don't know, being with me all week, being with me today. I don't know when you were able to tune in, but uh, thank you for doing it. It always means a lot that we're spending this time together. And I hope your week has been going well. I love Fridays, but you know I love Mondays too. Uh, So it's nice that uh, we've got some very summer-like weather here in the Twin Cities. So if you're enjoying a little bit of that tail end of uh, warmth, I, I know you're like me. You probably think this is nice because, uh, we, yeah, we know what's coming. We're not dumb. So we got a great hour planned coming up. Uh, Robin, Robin Leonard is joining me. She is speaking on behalf of Misty Roberts. Misty has got an uh, organization called patientmodesty.org. Misty can't uh, be on the show because Misty's deaf, but she is... Uh, doing a great bit of job, a great bit of work, helping others understand their rights as a patient. And to make sure that you exercise those rights, make sure that you know what you're signing off on when you go in for procedures and make sure you get the kind of help and assistance that you want. And don't be afraid to ask for it. If you want a person of the same sex helping you with a procedure that's intimate, make sure you you get that person. Make sure you ask and request. And if you say, well, I'm, I'm just going to sit here and wait till I can get a a female nurse or a male nurse, whatever it is. And they go, well, we can't provide that. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, there they are. So, I mean, you you have rights and you can ask and just know that uh, you are, um, you don't have to feel t- too stressed out about this. And, and Robin's going to talk about it coming up. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And then Kylie Crossland's going to be joining me as well on the program. She's a writer for World Digital News and I so enjoy her. Alex McFarlane's going to be on the show. It's going to be a great show with lots more to come. Let me take 60 seconds, and then we'll get started with Robin. I'm so glad to be having a discussion with Robin Leonard today. She is... Uh, talking about medical patient modesty. And we're going to help try to educate uh, people about how to make sure we have maximum modesty for procedures. And, you know, how to stand up for your rights when it comes to maybe requesting a a same-gender medical person for intimate procedures. And then also uh, how to make sure that there's no abuse by any kind of medical professionals. It seems that in this day and age, modesty has gone out the door a little bit. And that's not anything that Christians are uh, uh, interested in. We're interested in modesty, and I think it's important that we have this conversation. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, medical uh, patient modesty, and the website is patientmodesty.org. Yes, uh, it's a nonprofit organization, and it works to educate patients on how to keep their modesty during medical procedures. And they also educate medical professionals. I didn't know that. And uh, they want to help them how to be more sensitive to patient modesty. And you're right, it is a very, very important topic. And they want to, like you said before, you you know, they want to prevent uh, patient sexual abuse uh, and just educate. And I love the fact that they want to educate both patients and doctors. I think that's, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think it's kind of interesting, too, that when I first met, met uh, Misty and stumbled upon this... And Misty is the founder uh, of the uh, organization. Do I have that right? 
Yes. Good. She's a founder. I want to talk about her a little bit. Okay. She's an amazing woman. Now, she communicates mainly through writing or sign language. She is deaf. And I've met her several times, and we have really hit it off. And how we met is uh, I have an organization called Dignity Resource Council, so both of us have this common interest in modesty. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're different because um, our organization deals with caregiving. In that type of setting, and we designed a garment that you wear in the shower or while taking care of personal um, you know, of a family member sure. in, that, in, that, in that setting. So, um, but for her, it, uh, it's more of a roller coaster ride uh, because you deal with professionals and you deal with different settings in the medical community. So that was fun uh, just to run across her you know, by doing searches, but getting to know her was awesome. She's just so amazing. She has so much energy. And to look at the, the website, she developed many websites, but this particular one, it's just put together so well, and it's very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. I loved it. And I did volunteer for her a while back. Um, I also had, in my history, I was an actress, and I did voiceover work. And so I volunteered to do voiceover for her, uh, her videos, and they're so informative. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about some of those things. But uh, for the videos, we got a chance to really get into it more. Mm -hmm. So um, this is something that if there's anyone out there hearing all about these issues with uh, modesty, uh, now's the time to maybe jot these things down and her, her website and, um, you know, to check it out. A lot to learn. Yeah. Now, Robin, it's safe to say that if you are um, having a medical procedure coming up, part of your anxiety might be uh, how much you have to disrobe and how much you are going to be exposed? It could be, yes. I mean, do you think about that? I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And... I think in the old days, perhaps, we thought about, oh, this is, I'm entering this place of white coats and professionals, and I guess, you know, it, I mean, I don't want to put them on the God level, of course, here right. we are, Christians talking, but um, we did have a respect for doctors, but I think now it's getting more, uh, modesty is talked about a little bit more, and I know it is a, is a big topic, and I have to say that uh, I just want to get it out there that I don't want to uh, bash doctors. I, they're awesome doctors. They're However, best. you know, the issue of, of modesty is so very important. And I think that um, we hear more stories now. And there's, there's little stories, you know, that are just, you know, um, you know, stories of embarrassment. And we've all had those stories of those little cloth pieces that protect us or the paper shawls and not quite the gowns, you, you know, you'd think about. But I think there's also some uh, some dark things in industry, too. And um, there are some stories that I've heard, and I know Misty has a lot of accounts of uh, malpractice and, um, you know, uh, sexual issues and, uh, you know, I mean, look at Larry Nasser. I mean, when that came out in the news about mm -hmm. the, the gymnasts, who would have thought? And what really got me is that, these the crimes that he committed against these women were done in the presence of the gymnast mothers, some wow. of them. Amazing. So, so I think it's a very gray area for patients because you wonder, is this what's supposed to happen? And, you know, he said, well, you know, let's check that pelvic floor. And, you know, we have some muscles back there that need some... I mean, I, I don't know exactly how he went about it, but, you know, this can happen. And I think it's a time to educate women and to... Uh, talk about these issues. I mean, it's a, it's a tough topic, um, but 
you know, we have, I think it's a movement now. It's more patient-centered. Uh, before, I think the doctors would kind of uh, ran the show, but uh, now patients are, are getting in the act, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I do like that. And I have to say, because of what Misty's uh, main issue and, and, and her MOs, let's say, uh, it's all about rights. Well, there's a saying out there, and it's, if you don't know your rights, you have no rights. Good point. And, and it's really true. So when you think about it, I mean, everything that has to do with our rights. I mean, really, there's a patient's bill of rights, and you can look at them. And I know I looked at the, um, the federal regulations. I've looked at our own state, Florida, and we do have a right. And it's all about choice. We can choose our own doctor. Mm-hmm. And there's much more. Now, let me ask you something. I, I know you probably had a loved one or a relative get ready for surgery, and or yourself. Have you ever thought about those papers that you signed when you went in? You know, when you're there and you're all strapped up and you're thinking, oh, my, I'm getting ready. And, and, uh, and they hand you these, you know, the stack of papers. Just sign here. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, yes, and you just sign. You don't really read or study or do much analysis. You kind of just sign away. I know. I hear you. I know. I used to do that, too. <laughs> and I know reading some of these interesting stories um, and articles on the website, one such story talked about those papers, and I had no idea that you can actually give permission for med students to practice on you and to learn skills and techniques. And, and it, it was rather disturbing to think that a woman could go in there and think she's getting her wrist or, or knee worked on. But yet med students could come in and do public exams on her mm-hmm. because she signed a release saying, it's okay, I give permission, but she is unaware of it. And I think that uh, situations like that, it's so important to get the word out, so, so important. Mm-hmm. And that could all be prevented. And it's not to say, oh, look at those evil doctors doing this. No, it's about choice. And I think when we realize as a patient that we have a choice and not just, uh, you know, the gender of a doctor or because we hear something good about this doctor that one's more talented or look at his track record and all that is important. It's all important. Um, But to be equipped uh, with this, you know, the behind-the-scene information, this is what this is what's good to know. And Misty, let me tell you, she lays it out there. So I agree with you. I mean, it's it can happen when you when you don't think about what you're signing. But yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, but Rob, Robin, let me take a little break because when I come back, I want to ask you more about uh, okay. you know biblical modesty. I know yes. Miss, Misty's got a website, biblicalmodesty.com, so you can get some questions answered at that website. But I also uh, want to talk about being able to just uh, vocally stand up for your rights when it comes to asking for a same-sex person to come help you with some kind of uh, procedure. Um, yes. Yeah, Robin Leonard is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I have Robin Leonard on the show. We are talking about uh, m- medical modesty, and she is uh, speaking on behalf today of uh, the founder of um, this organization. Um, and she, uh, Misty, is um, uh, deaf, so she couldn't do the show herself, but it's medical uh, patientmodesty.org, where you can go look at more on the website. Now, we need to encourage people to uh, not just assume that whatever whoever walks in the exam room is the person that you have to necessarily have do your intimate procedure. Yes, right. You, you can ask for a, another uh, person of the same sex, can't you? Mm-hmm. Of course. And yeah. I remember hearing stories, too, where someone said, now, look, I really don't, my, my grandma or my, or my uh, aunt here doesn't want to have you insert the... Uh, catheter, mm-hmm. which she'd like a, a female nurse. Well, I'm sorry, we only have, you know, the male ones present. And uh, this, as the story went, well, she doesn't mind waiting. Mm-hmm. Well, sure enough, ten minutes later, here comes a woman. So I think, I think as, as patients, sometimes we get intimidated with um, the rush, rush, and urgency that you hear in the medical community. I mean, people are whisking by, and you know, we could get into that flow. But we can take the time, and we can say, you know, this is very important to me. Um, I'd like to have somebody sit with me, perhaps, while I have this uh, exam. There's a lot of different things that we can ask for. And I think we, if you don't ask, you don't know. Right. And uh, it's perfectly fine. I don't think there's really a right or wrong, but um, why not have a conversation about it? I think it's important. And the same with, um, for example, colonoscopies. If you'd like, you can say, you know, I'd like to be covered. And what really happens? I mean, uh, do I have to be under anesthesia? And a lot of times, um, I know Misty writes a lot about anesthesia, that you're literally, you have no idea what's going on. I mean, you're, you're asleep, I guess. But to talk about it beforehand, I think it's very important. And I don't know if you know this, but you can actually get special garments to cover you with the colonoscopy even. I know that she talks about different companies. I think Cover Medical is one, and there's Bruce Levy at Mayo Clinic. They designed these interesting garments that just allow a certain area to be shown Mm -hmm. and covers you, and it's great. So you discover more when you ask. You say, what's available to me? I'd like to keep my underwear on, for example, underneath this this garment. And you can if it's cotton. If Mm -hmm. it's 100% cotton, you can, because I think they're afraid of nylon. I guess in the old days, they're worried about sparks, you know, with the oxygen and so forth. But cotton is just fine. And uh, you can do that. So by all means, it is very, very easy to open your mouth. But, you know, we have to get over that fear. Yeah. We can't express ourselves. Yeah, now, I think Misty has put together a, a pamphlet, a, uh, a booklet on learning about modesty from a biblical perspective. Um, yes. Do you have yes. a little information on that, and can you share something from that booklet? Well, you know, there's so much uh, information that she has out there, especially on her website, and she put together these booklets to help educate women, and right now she wants to distribute them. So she has some fundraisers up. I think on her website she has a GoFundMe. But basically it's the things that we've been talking about. Uh, to encourage young women, to encourage them about their choices, to uh, educate them, especially with her website, too. There's a lot of things that are quoted. And, for example, she would say, now, look, if you want to have a female gynecologist, here's where you can find. It doesn't matter the state you live in. You go on this website, and it shows you by state which 
uh, facility or uh, doctor's offices have an all-female uh, OBGYNs. That's important. And so the things like that, just it, it's almost like a condensed version of what you can get on our website. She gives you what you need to know to equip you to get started in this relationship with your gynecologist. And it's very, very important to know the facts before you even look into it or listen to maybe you know, your aunt or your cousin or something. Oh, I found this one. And, yeah, it's good to get referrals, but it's better to understand um, how we feel. I mean, as Christians, we know that uh, modesty is very, very important. I mean, the Apostle Paul talked about it, and he even talked about the unseemly part should get more coverage, you know, more honor. And, yeah, we, I mean, ever since the days of Adam and Eve, I mean, we, we are people who cover themselves, and we know that uh, we want to be covered. But I think especially for women, they're more at risk, um, but the young men, too. We have bo- she has booklets for young men. And, uh, you know, they have issues and, and surveys found that they would prefer having a man, uh, you know, for urology or for special uh, exams. Uh, let's face it. I mean, we all, we all have a degree. Uh, it's a God-given thing to have modesty, mm-hmm. and we, we want to protect ourselves. So, but this brings it out into the open. Yeah. And, and her heart is to distribute these and mm-hmm. to have put it in the hands of students, especially. Uh, so hopefully um, we can get some viewers out there that might be interested in, in uh, lending a hand at this cause. And I think right now, being a, a, a nonprofit, you know, they work on donations, and I know that they've been, they've been doing fundraisers. But look for the GoFundMe account. Um, and, and there, if anyone wants to just give a few dollars or so, uh, it adds up. And these uh, booklets can be distributed and get in the hands of women that need it. So thank you for asking about that. Yeah, I know there's been uh, situations where people would go into the emergency room and then they may have abdominal cramps or something and they they end up leaving because they find that there's only opposite sex sex doctors available or men back out of vasectomies because they think, boy, there's I don't want a female assistant in the room and... There's all kinds of things that keep people from uh, going forward with medical procedures because of their anxiety about yes. uh, their modesty. Um, so, yeah, it's an important issue. Yes, it, it is definitely an important issue. And she also talks about the history, you know, of the uh, gynecological uh, movement uh, in medicine and how it came. It has a very, very dark history. And back in the day, you know, women weren't allowed. I mean, midwives were the ones. They mm-hmm. were the ones that uh, brought the babies in. What happened? You know, when med school started, only men. Women yeah. weren't allowed. There's your answer. Yeah, yeah. And the, the so-called father of gyne- uh, gynecology, I mean, I don't think he's much of a, of a father figure, but he, it was very dark. I mean, he, ex- he experimented on, this is during the slave days, and he performed experiments on slaves without anesthetics. And it was, uh, it, w- it was tough. So it, it went from there to, uh, to starting the, the men's movement to take over this industry. And, I, and here's, what, here's some good news I want to share with your viewers, is that, or your listeners, rather, that now... More than ever, there are more women in that field than men. Mm-hmm. It's getting smaller and smaller, and women, I think, are have a voice now, and they're saying, we want women. Yeah. And I, there's many of them. 
So I I love that, and I know that we're all about this gender gender neutral movement, but in this industry, women are growing. Yeah, and I love that. So yeah. there are more choices. And what you were talking about, what happens when you have to leave? That's not the case now. Right. And I love to say, hey, women are great doctors. Amen. And and I've read lots of articles. I was just looking at them a, a few minutes ago, and I thought, wow. They add, I mean, there's, a, there's figures, I think Time Magazine did an article, and so did U.S. News and World Report, that women have found to be better doctors than men. Now, only by a little bit, but gives us some bragging yeah. rights. And I think it's because of the way we are. We talk more. We get into conversation. And men can see more patients, but they're, they have a shorter time with them. Yeah. It doesn't mean one's a whole lot better. It's just a small margin, but it can make a big difference yeah. in a woman's life. Yeah. And and I think it's great that we have a choice. Choices, I agree. what it's all about. Yeah. Robin, thank you so much. Uh, patientmodesty.org is the website. And Robin, thank you so much for coming on and being such a great spokesperson. I so appreciate um, you doing this on behalf of Misty. Yes, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. God we'll bless ta- you. God bless you. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. glad to welcome Carly Crossland to the show. She's uh, reports on marriage, family, and sexuality for World Digital. You can follow her on Twitter at Kylie Crossland and also um, go to world.wng.org. Carly, welcome. Thanks. It's great to have it's great to be here. Bob. Nice to have you on the show. All right. I had a gentleman on this week and he was 80 years old and doing uh, handing out Bibles on campus at a university and he said 99% of everyone walking around was looking down at their phones. And yeah. I thought, wow, okay, now it starts early when it comes to uh, telephones, ages 12 to 19. That sounds like uh, they they can't live without their smartphones, can they? They can't live without them, no. And it's like interesting when you when you tell that story. They're connecting to lots of people, and yet in so many ways they're isolated. So they're walking around with their head down, you know, looking at their device, not looking at the people around them. I think that's like often the story with us and our phones is that we feel more connected, but we're actually not. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the the technology industry is using this generation as guinea pigs, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, you know, we're finding there are more and more studies about what these devices are doing to us, but there's so little science yet. Um, And so in a lot of ways, yes, today's, you know, teens and younger are guinea pigs of technology. And there's a kind of a debate right now about how that plays into what many people are calling a mental health crisis among young people today. So just, you know, we see these increasing rates of anxiety and depression, 
um, suicide, self-harm. And so there's just this natural question, okay, are these two things related? You know, we've never had young people who have so much access to technology and mental health is plummeting, you know, are these um, connected in some Mm -hmm. way? And aren't more and more kids even claiming mental health issues as a way to cope with their reality, which is, uh, is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in addition to kids saying I'm struggling, kids are also, um, you know, being hospitalized more. So right. in, I guess in addition to self-reporting, there's also just cases of kids being admitted into hospitals. So it's not just that they say that they're struggling more, they actually are um, struggling more. And it's interesting because there's kind of two sides of it. I mean, some people argue this is absolutely connected and other people are saying, no, it's not. Um and so there's kind of this debate among social scientists about whether or not these two things are connected. Um, but as I'm reading more and more studies, it just seems like um, there's one researcher in particular, um, Jean Twangy, who has written a bunch of books and kind of is cited often. And she just, all of her research has found that, you know, screen time decreases happiness, period, mm-hmm. for young people. So screen-related activities, texting, social media, you know, watching videos, watching TV, all of that decreases happiness, reported happiness, and everything else. So doing homework, you know, playing with your friends, going to a party, hanging out with your parents, eating dinner, all of those things increase happiness. And so she's just saying, hey, look at the science. Um, this is not, you know, phones are not good for kids. Mm-hmm. And I think of some of the trends in the past, there was a time when you used to smoke on airplanes. You don't do that anymore. There was a time when nobody would ever wear a bicycle helmet. Now it seems like everybody does. And maybe we'll be saying that about cell phones one day. We used to walk around staring at our cell phones. Now we don't do that anymore. Right. I mean, you are seeing people kind of realizing the effect it has on them. Um, I mean, I think of my generation. So, so, Twangy, this researcher, writes a lot about Gen X. So that's like younger, kind of 1995, birthdays, 1995 to 2012. You know, I would be considered a millennial. Um, I, I think a lot of millennials are starting to come to grips with the fact that, like, I don't like my life when I am on social media all the time, or I don't like living through other people's likes and dislikes. Um, I don't feel as connected to people as I did when I was calling them or meeting them in person. But I do think the younger generations, I mean, they've been so absorbed with this. They've never not had social media. Um, They've never known their life without it. Um, One of the studies looked at, it was asking teenage girls about their phones. And they, one of the girls said something like, I don't like my day when I'm on social media all day, but then I go to sleep and I wake up and I do it all over again. Wow. There, there you go. Um, yeah. <laughs> can't live with it and can't live without it. Right. That's, uh, that's right. sad. All right. Now school is back in session. I know your little ones uh, in preschool. So um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with uh, sports at the high school level. Uh, there yeah. is plenty of um, unequal opportunities, isn't there? Which is a polite way of saying, Some of the transgender athletes are competing and cleaning up. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a kind of a story I'm following. Three girls in Connecticut filed a lawsuit over the summer, um, just arguing that Connecticut's policy about um, students being able to compete under their gender identity. So basically saying, I'm going to identify however I want, and I get to compete against whoever I want based on that gender identity. So these students sued Connecticut saying that's unfair and it denies them, you know, opportunities in 
sports under Title IX. And um, in August, the U.S. Department of Education said that they were going to investigate the situation. So it'll be interesting how it plays out. You know, they've, they've just started the investigation. This could take months or it could take years. Um, but Connecticut's kind of been a battleground for it because there's two particular students um, kind of competing at high-level track and field in Connecticut, um, both biological males who are competing as females who have really swept like the sprint distance races and in Connecticut, like state championship level. And so I think it's just bringing, bringing it to light, like as these parents and students are grappling with watching these competitors really um, kick people off of, you know, the medal stand um, saying, is this really fair? Like, is this really equal opportunity for our girls? Um, you know, are these girls really getting um, a fair chance at competing? It's a great point, Carly. And, when I think of even the the bathroom and locker room spaces, uh, and this is just a common sense thing, but you take a yeah. small, small number of boys who struggle with their their gender identity, God bless them, yeah. but they get first priority on the girls' private spaces. Girls who yeah. are unwilling to sacrifice their bodily privacy right. get second priority. Right, absolutely. How does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, it's just this total embrace of this ideology that says, if you say you're a girl, you are a girl, you know, and you should be given every opportunity. Um, And I think what, what the story that we just need to continually be telling is that there are victims to that ideology. Mm -hmm. And almost always right now it's girls um, because their private spaces are being taken. Um, and then also, I mean, you know, the suit that these girls filed, they kind of looked at like competition at, you know, high level Connecticut high school competition in the last few years. And they said, you know, just these two transgender competitors have, um, beat, I think like kicked off like 15 girls state championship titles. So previously held by girls, you know, state championship titles that these two athletes have now gained. And then like 40 girls who would have had the opportunity to advance to higher level competition, you know, being seen by more coaches or scouts for colleges, you know, potentially scholarship opportunities, all these things that they were denied because these other, you know, these biologically male competitors um, raced instead of they did. Mm -hmm. So Carly, when was the last time you uh, booked a flight. Has it been in the last couple of months? Yeah, I oh, have. All right. You, you realize that when you're filling out your flight form, they ask you if you are a male or female. Right. They are pretty specific about needing to know if you're male or female. I don't know. Is that, are they, are, when it comes to real life and real serious situations, they need to know if you are a male or female. Right. That's yeah, the real I mean, world. It's the real world. You know, I think um, there really is no such thing as non-binary when it comes to gender. I mean, we are created male or female. And I think most people, when they actually come to grips with it, embrace that or at least acknowledge that. But um, yeah, but yeah, there's just a kind of a denial of reality. And it's uh, very sad for the the girls who are being denied, like you say, they're exceptional elite athletes who have trained right. their whole lives and their their chances are getting wiped out. Right. By and there's yeah. males that you know are identifying as as girls but they were they went through uh, adolescence and puberty as boys. Right. And that's the key that's exactly what I was just going to say is that there's kind of so 
So one pushback would say, oh, well, they just need to take hormone suppressants, you know, to suppress their testosterone levels, and then that will really equal the playing field. But there is a big study that just came out last month that was kind of looking at the um, International Olympic Committee um, standards, which they mean they require transgender athletes to maintain like a suppressed testosterone level, um, male to female transgender athletes. And um, this study showed that that actually doesn't level the playing field, that there's still performance advantages just from having male physiology and having gone through puberty as a male. Mm -hmm. And that you can't take away that advantage just by requiring them to suppress their testosterone levels. Yeah. Um, I want to go to break here in just a second, Kylie, but I also want to ask you about this uh, vaping, which uh, seems to just get, there's one bad story after another. Oh man, it's just been one thing after the other. I was just looking, I mean, I, I, I need to like keep, keep up with it because there's news that just broke yesterday about it that I haven't even written about. Um, but yeah, these, um, I mean, on one side of it, just the severe breathing illnesses that they're finding, um, you know, I think up to 500 cases, the CDC said yesterday, and then also some deaths, I think eight, eight deaths, um, from vaping related illnesses that they really are just trying to explain like what is going on here. They don't really know. Yeah, it's a very sad story. There was a, a guy in Minneapolis here who uh, really had never had any experience before um, with even cigarettes, but got into trying vaping. And of course, it's got some pretty nice flavors attached to it, some of the the uh, candied flavors. Oh, and... Have you looked at, I mean, the list of flavors, I Googled it while I was writing this story. It's insane, like donut flavors, slushies, <laughs> and yeah. So you are taking in who knows what kind of oil is coating your lungs right. as you're taking this uh, this in. And anyway, this poor kid was hospitalized, and he was told he had the lung lungs of a seventy year old. Yeah, right. And they're saying it's not just like smoke, like the what they see in smokers, but it's more like a chemical injury yeah. to, to the lungs. Right. Um, so it's really serious and it'll be interesting how it all plays out because the vaping industry is huge and flavors are their, you know, bread and butter. I mean, people don't right. like vaping tobacco, smelling oil. They like vaping fun, fruity, coffee, chocolate, you know, all sorts of other things. And so the federal government this week said that they are going to crack down on flavors. It'll just be interesting how all that plays out. I'm sure there'll be a, a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a little break. Kylie Crossland is my guest. She's over at World Digital, world.wng.org. You can see all of her writing there. We'll take a short break and be right back. the show. I'm always glad to talk to Kylie Crossland, one of my favorite guests. And I'm just uh, delighted, Kylie, that you can uh, be on the show today. And there's so much stuff in the news. When we talk about, um, I know you write primarily for marriage and sexuality and family and that kind of things. When it comes to what's going on with some of the sexual issues, even in prison. Now, yeah. we're being asked as taxpayers to start paying or sex change surgical operations for inmates. 
Correct. Help me yep. with this one. Yeah. Um, the Ninth Circuit ruled recently that Idaho needed to pay for a sex change surgery for an inmate. Um, but it's it's going to hopefully go to the Supreme Court the um, or likely go to the Supreme Court. The governor of Idaho said, appealed the decision. And the circuit courts are split on this. So this kind of could feel like a fringe issue, like should the states pay for prisons, you know. But it really comes back to this question of, you know, is sex change surgery across the board medically necessary, which they're arguing it is? Um, and then should, you know, should states pay for this? Should taxpayers pay for inmates to have this procedure done? Um, and Idaho is saying, no, like this is a misuse of taxpayer funding. You know, our medical experts say this is not medically necessary. And just the specifics of the case, I think, speak to the situation that inmate um, that sued for this, I mean, is that is convicted of sexually abusing a child. I mean, so just someone that has had kind of crimes in their past, sexually related crimes in their past, it just seems outlandish that the state should pay for this. All right. Let's, um, as we, as we stay in the technology, I want to jump back to some technology issues because every kid now, I remember when a cell phone was a a luxury. Now it's an absolute drop dead necessity because this is how we communicate now, which is okay. But um, it's all gotten to the point where the internet has become pri- the primary way that people are trying to meet each other. We yeah. have sort of lost this whole sense of, you know, approaching someone, you know, that you might want to meet and be nervous and your knees are knocking and, and you try to, you know, make an introduction and, and try to meet people. Now everything is done online. What's, yeah. are there, is there advantages to that or mostly disadvantages? I've got my opinion. You go first. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I probably have my own personal opinion as well. Um, science hasn't really come down on, is this necessarily a bad trend? But it's definitely, um, I mean, the, the main way people meet now is online. So it is, you know, overcome, met through friends, met through family, met in church, met at school, met at work, met in our neighborhood. I mean, all these other ways that for decades and decades people met, they're no, you know, those ways are um, taking a second seat to meeting online. That's the main way people meet now. Um, and I think like, you know, I mean, there's definitely something to be said for the fact that when people meet outside of all other um kind of social connections that they have. So otherwise perfect strangers are now trying to start a relationship that there are going to be negative effects from that. You know, there's just something to be said about meeting someone and knowing that they're friends of my friends, they're friends right. of my family. I'm, you know, that there's some other connection that you have to them, but just um, trying to meet someone who you have no other connection with. Um, it seems like there's there's some downsides to that. Yeah, Kylie, does it also give people permission to isolate a little bit more? Because I don't meet people in like real life. I meet them at home when I'm on my computer or on my phone. So you can you can try to become more social by being less social. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, Bill, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, it definitely takes away like trying to be nice to the people around right. you. It could be your future, you know, um, girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife. Um, if you know that, oh, I'm only, and I think some of it too is just these drawn out online communications. So um, when you're meeting online, you know, there's just lots of texting, lots of messaging or whatever before you actually might ever meet in person. Well, we all know meeting in person is how you really know if you like someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, just it gets drawn out. You're right. It can be like socially isolating. 
um, yeah, lots of downsides. Yeah, and I'm I'm sorry that it's going that way. I mean, it's it's nice that people can create profiles about themselves, which I'm sure are 100 percent true. Uh, <laughs> don't laugh. Uh, and then that there's uh, you know you you can you can start off by initiating something that you, you might be otherwise very nervous to start. And I pray that there's lots of because I know people who've met online and have gotten yeah, nice marriages. Yeah, me too. So, yeah, totally. I've, know, I've been to a lot of online dating weddings. Okay, cool. So there, it's definitely viable, but I'm get, I get concerned about the fact that we're relying too much on um, digital things when we're really analog beings. We need right. eye contact. We need tone. We need body posture. We need we need all that yeah. stuff. We we can't we just all get a text and go, oh, I I think she likes me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. Now let's talk a, a little bit about. Um, this new study that came out, which is sad, but one in 16 women report mm-hmm. uh, having some forced or, or coerced uh, sex for the first time. Yeah, it's really tragic. And there's been a lot of play recently. This study came out. Um, you know, lots of people have kind of been trying to speak to it. I mean, the study itself is hard to read. It's just really sad. Um, it was a real huge, they looked at like, I think it was 13,000 women over the course of seven years, just talking about, um, the fact that the first time that they, um, had sex, it was coerced or forced. So whether that was physically being held down, being given a drug, um, being threatened, um, but that they didn't feel like it was of their own free will. Um, so the study itself is is awful. And then they also looked at kind of adverse health effects down the road. So these women who reported that that was their experience um, just after the fact had, um, you know, just more sexual partners, more unwanted pregnancies, more abortions, gynecological issues, reported poor general health. Um, so it's really sad that, that, that there are some down the road effects of that initial experience. Um, yeah, but so basically the, the public has kind of cried out and said, okay, so the answer to this is sex education. Like we just need to teach people consent because the problem is people don't know how to give and receive consent. Um, and I just think I talked to some experts who just think that really misses the mark. And I, I would agree. I mean, Kylie, it's, um, there's, first of all, these women have experienced and tragedy and trauma that they're going to probably be living with for, I don't know, what do you think, most of their life? For sure. I mean, I think for for sure that that affects you for the rest of your life. And how they view their sexuality then, and, you know, until they come into the the understanding that that the Bible has uh, taught and what Christ wants for their lives and their sexuality, they've got some work to do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that lack of understanding of just humans as holistic beings that, um, for one, consent, consensual sex as teens is still a risk behavior. So, and like, it's not um, great for teens, like science would say, to have sex as a teenager. But then also just the fact that um, understanding like what is a healthy relationship and modeling that and having really good connections to family and friends who can help you understand that. I mean, those are the best things to prevent, um, this sort of sexual assault or dating violence. Um, I talked to a couple experts who are just talking about the fact that it's really unpopular to say, but science just keeps saying the best, one of the strongest ways to prevent sexual assault and dating violence among minors is an involved dad. 
So when dad is involved, especially in a daughter's life, rates of those things just drop dramatically. And that family breakdown is really a huge part of this. And no one wants to talk about that because it's easier to just say, we need to implement these programs in school. We just need to have comprehensive sex education in all of our classrooms and this problem will be solved. And I think the truth is that family is more of that, you know, the systemic problem behind it that um, is what what we really need to focus on. And Kylie, talk about how important it is that mom and dad stay together. So important. I mean, social science can't be clearer that the best thing for a kid is to live in a home with their married biological parents. And that's not always possible. Mm -hmm. And it's a tragedy when it's not possible. And God can redeem that in a really amazing way. But the best thing for a kid is for um, him or her to have a relationship and be in a home with their married biological parents. And, um, there's just nothing else. That's the gold standard. Nothing else matches that when it comes to health outcomes, you know, mental health outcomes, you know, all sorts of like success in life down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's again, seeing how God created us like, Oh, the studies actually are proving that he knew what he was doing. Yeah. I even read a study recently that kids would rather be in the home with their biological parents fighting and not getting along than yeah. having them not be together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a super interesting study. And, and I think that's, that um, sounds like what I've read as well. Just the fact that kids long for that. And that even if it's not the best situation, that it's, it's way better um, than, you know, other like single parent, um, single parent with a live-in boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, I mean, all these other, um, same-sex parents, like all these other, um, you know, homes that kids could live in, just married, married biological parents is the best, you know, and studies show that often when married, like when husband and wives really work through difficulty and try and overcome it, that their marriages get stronger. So some of it is just sticking with it. And I think kids appreciate that kids, you know, suffer when, when divorce happens. Yeah. Well, you're also setting a precedence too. If your children watch uh, mom and dad divorce, then in their lives, divorce is a, is a viable option uh, versus I watched my mom and dad um, maybe not get along great all the time and fight, but they stayed committed to each other and devoted to the marriage because they had a a covenant um, and they wanted to live that out. And so that becomes, I think what they think in the back of their head, if I get in a marriage, I'm in a, I'm going to fight to stay in it and not look for an out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, parents model oh. more with their actions than their words. And I think kids see that and they say, okay, this is what marriage is. It's not easy, but it's, you know, like a commitment and my parents stuck with it. Yep. And that's huge. Yeah. It's that old saying, what you're doing speaks so loudly. I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Kylie, it's been awfully nice to uh, talk to you. Thank you so much for doing the show. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me, Bill. You bet. Kylie Crossland has been my guest. If you want to uh, go read her work, it's at world.wng.org. I'll give that again, world.wng.org. We'll take a short break and be right back. 